Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3? Uh, in our reading plan this last week, we've transitioned from the Gospel of John to the letters of John, uh, which I think is really cool to read them back to back like this. And this morning, I'll be preaching from the letter of 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And it's a beautiful passage. And uh, well, you'll see. Let me read it to you. It says this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. O oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Now, We've got to begin by undoing some assumptions in order to make sure that we feel the grand and glorious nature of the truth being reflected on here. John is amazed at the gospel truth that we are children of God. And that's not amazing to many people because we have an assumption that we're all children of God. All people are God's children. I've had this conversation with several people who are puzzled by the Bible's language of speaking of God's people or God's children. And they say, isn't everyone God's people? Everyone God's children. And we assume perhaps because we're all his creatures that we're all his children. Or the more theologically minded among us might even think that since we're all made in his image, we're all his children. But a creature and even an image, as glorious as that is, is not a child. Isn't it striking that in several places Jesus is called God's only son? Especially in the writings of John, we, as we've been reading in our reading plan over the last couple weeks, you might have noticed John 1.14, glory is of the only son from the father. 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 3.18, whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 1 John 4.9, which we read on Friday, says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Jesus is God's only Son. The term child of God really belongs to one person alone according to the nature of eternal reality. In creation, no matter how special we humans are to him, we aren't that. And so we shouldn't expect to be that. That would be an unthinkable privilege. And we could be unspeakably happy with far, far less. To be loved like the angels, for instance. Or like Adam and Eve in the midst of the garden in the cool of the day. Human beings are special to God, to be sure, and we are deeply loved by God, to be sure, but we simply aren't in his heart in the same category as his one and only son. Such a thing is an outrageous thought. 
that we should actually be children of God. And it's made even more unthinkable by our rebellion as his creatures and images. Our sin has marred us and polluted us into unworthy rebels. And, And that we would be his children at all in the first place, and especially in such a deplorable state, it would be the height of ignorance and arrogance to presume upon such a thing. And this is what makes what happens next so amazing, so unbelievably good. That God loved us far beyond what is reasonable, and he sent his one and only son to retain his sonship while becoming one of us, uniting the natures of God's created image and his uncreated son. And then his son took this unity with us to an even greater unimaginable level, and he bore in himself not only our nature, but also our penalty from, for our rebellion and our sin, and our pollution, and in so doing, even to die in our place. And his father, as a true father with his power would, vindicated his son's sacrifice and raised him from the dead. And when God raised him from the dead, it was to bring us up with him. Because we saw last week that his resurrection and his ascension to the father initiated his sending of his spirit. And in Romans 8, we are told, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And then we're told this, and a couple verses later, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs, with Christ. This is how we become children of God, through the one and only Son of God becoming one of us and dying for us and being raised and sending his spirit into us that we might share his very sonship. And this is how we know the greatness of God's love for us, John says. That he made a way not just to bring us back to Adam and Eve's relationship or to the angel's relationship, but to his own eternal son's relationship with him. And at such great lengths, at such great cost, to make us his very own children. And this is what Jesus was wanting for us, to share his sonship with us, so that right before he went to die for us, he prayed in John 17, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is why John is so astounded and awestruck and humbled with gratitude at the thought that we are called children of God that we actually are children of God. To be a child means that you have rights in a relationship with him and have confidence before him, assurance like a child has before an earthly father. The other day, my son Wally walked up to me with so much confidence and said, I pooped, daddy, with, with all the confidence in the world that I would take care of it. And I'm not helping any of you with your poop but he's my son. And I was happy to help the little guy be clean. I changed his diaper with a smile on my face and he was right to expect that I would. 
This is the astounding truth of the gospel of grace. That we have the confidence of a son before a father. I remember when I was baptized, I was baptized the same week as someone else. And so we did our preceding baptism uh, meeting with the pastor at the same time. The pastor asked, do you think you're going to heaven? And I remember I excitedly and confidently said yes. And the other person waffled and wasn't so sure. I was like, yeah, I, I, hope, I hope so. I could tell it seemed too presumptuous to them. Like they'd be boasting about how good they are to confidently say that they are going to heaven. And by all measurable accounts, just being honest, this person is a better person than me. So why was I so confident? And they weren't. And in hindsight, it's not surprising to me that they left the faith. Because that understanding, how they answered that question, betrays a misunderstanding of the gospel. Why would I have so much more confidence when I'm objectively a worse person? Because I knew it wasn't based on me. I was utterly reoriented by this incredible truth that God's son had made a way for me to share in his sonship and that I have a heavenly father who will always be my father. The gospel doesn't make us uncertain about our standing before God. It makes us confident that we have a heavenly father as confident as Wally is before me. And when Wally's having a bad day, it doesn't mean I quit being his father. If anything, I feel my fatherhood more deeply in those moments. Like I need to be a father to him. Remember, God is the one who invented fatherhood so that we would know what it means to be a father, what it means to have a father. And it does shape our view of him. That's why it's so sad when it's done poorly. I was listening to a popular NPR podcast recently called This American Life, and, and they had a segment where the host, Ira Glass, was interviewing a man who had left the Jewish faith, and, and the man said, as a kid, you know, you go to these Hebrew schools, and you're hearing, our father who art in heaven, and I'm going, oh God, tell me there's not another one up in heaven. He's bad enough at home. And the host, Ira Glass, said, wow, that's so interesting. I realize as you said that my image of God is exactly, I never put this together in my life, but it's exactly my image of my father but bigger, which is he's usually not around. Sometimes he'll take an interest. He means well, but mostly he's kind of like, you know, you're on your own. And the man said, well, that, yeah, that wasn't mine. I wish it were mine. Mine was a God in heaven lumbering around in his underpants, half drunk on wine, looking for somebody to yell at. And this is so sad to me. And it's such a splash of cold water in my face as a father to live the truth about the heavenly father. But we will naturally have our, our view of our father shaped by our earthly fathers. Even, but even the faltering and failing, it doesn't reflect on him. What it does is point us to a perfect father. Even the faltering and failing of our earthly fathers points us to the hope of a perfect father. When Jonathan Edwards, a colonial preacher and a theologian, when he was on his deathbed, he wrote to his children, he said, you are now to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an Inducement to you to seek a father who will never fail you. God is such a father. A father who loves us with an unfailing, perfect love. Who wants to be our father forever. Who wants us as his children. And made a way for us to be adopted into his family. 
There's a song by Slugs and Bugs that I play in the car for the kids, which is like a, a Christian song group for kids. And it's about, it's, a, it's about an incredible truth, this incredible truth, that, that in the chorus it says, I'm adopted. I'm adopted. It's one of the few songs that Wally will sing along with a little bit. And Audrey and I laughed at the thought of him singing it out of context, like bopping around at school saying, I'm adopted, I'm adopted. Everybody wondering. But, but it's such a beautiful truth that we ought to sing about it. The song says, once I was a stranger to my God and King, but he saw me there from his throne above and he sought me and he bought me. And now I sing of a brand new life and his endless love and how love had a plan for me and a great big family. I'm adopted. Love came and found me, wrapped arms around me. I'm adopted. And adoption is an extraordinary and powerful love. And we know this from adoption just among us humans, right? There's, there's a moment when a child who wasn't a part of a family becomes a part of that family. And parents commit to loving them as their own, which is not natural in, in a technical sense. It's beyond nature. It's in our nature to nurture our own children, but to choose a child who isn't ours to become ours. For them to really be, in every sense that matters from here on out, our child. To give them the rights and demands on our life that a child ought to have. To promise to love them as much as a child that came from our flesh. Such an outrageous thing actually happens. We've seen it in our own congregation. And this is a love beyond nature. Making it, I believe, supernatural. It is a supernatural love, a picture of transcendent truth that is amazing and awe-inspiring, the supernatural love of adoptive parents. But God's love, his adoptive love, is even more amazing because it's not just supernatural, it's nature-changing. What if an adoptive parent's love could not only transcend nature but actually change the nature of the beloved? It started as supernatural, but then they changed the very nature of the one they loved. That is how God loves us. He loves us into his likeness. He doesn't just adopt us. He regenerates us, rebirths us into his family. And this is why John says the world does not know us because they didn't know him. He's hammering home the point that we're like him and we are of the same relationship to the father and therefore of the same relationship to the world. Known by the Father, unknown by the world, because we are of his same nature. This is amazingly true of us now, but there will come a time, he tells us, when it will be extraordinarily more true in a fuller and greater sense. Listen, he says, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. He says, what we will be has not yet appeared. When I was in high school or college, I can't remember exactly which, but uh, uh, I was watching a science fiction movie with my friend Brad Lewis, who many of you know. He used to always try and get me to watch scary movies with him, uh, but I, I couldn't handle them because I'm a baby. And uh, he, he suckered me into this one, though, because it's a science fiction film, and, and uh, I, I can get into a science fiction movie. And it was about astronauts on a mission 
to reignite a failing sun by launching like nukes into it or something. And I don't remember much of it, but I can't, I, I, so I can't recommend the movie as a whole, but there is a concept that I found fascinating and still think about from time to time, 10 years later. And this was really, it was a really interesting premise that was key to the plot. And it is that the sun, our sun, once you get closer to it out in space, it's so beautiful and compelling and awe-inspiring and resplendent that you become entranced by it and, and, and addicted to gazing at it which I totally get after seeing a total solar eclipse a while back, right? The wonder of it is totally captivating. And in the movie, they have this observation deck with these heavy-duty shields and filters to keep the light and the heat and the radiation at bay so that you can look at the sun. And, and you can reduce or increase the shields to see the sun more or less unfiltered. And the more you look at it, though, the more you want to see it unfiltered until you reduce the filters so much that it destroys you. And that thought of a beauty and a glory so great that you want nothing so much as to gaze upon it and to see it purely and unobstructed no matter the cost, a glory so great that it would destroy you as you are now. That's not fiction. But the sun and a human being are of such radically different natures that they can't coexist on an intimate level. The greater consumes the lesser. But what if your nature could be changed to be of the same nature as that unimaginable glory so that it doesn't disintegrate you, but it reintegrates you and, and makes you complete and whole and feeds you and grows you as you gaze upon it? This is our hope. But it's not an impersonal beauty that we hope to behold. It is a personal glory, or I should say a glorious person. And because we've been remade, reborn into his image as children of God, we share in his nature. And the glorious sight of him will not disintegrate us, but will fully reintegrate us, making us whole and complete and perfect. And in a fuller sense than this word can probably capture, we will be utterly happy. This is what theologians have, throughout church history have called the beatific vision. Beatific means to make happy. Like in the Beatitudes, right? In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, they're called that because the, uh, he says blessed or happy is the, the meek or the merciful or the pure and so on. The, the beatific vision is the blessed or happifying vision of Christ when the veil is fully lifted and we drink straight from the fountain of joy. As the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We see in part now through the dim mirror of faith, but one day we shall see face to face. There is to come a, a vision so glorious that it will glorify us. The Lord transfigured before our renewed eyes in a manifestation even greater than, than what Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. We shall see him as he is and he will complete us and make us whole 
restoring our full humanity and consummating our sonship, purifying us, cleansing us of all that is sinful and deceptive and ugly, healing us of what is broken and twisted. The vision of Christ, when we behold him in his splendor, will fill us with such eternal joy, the likes of which we can hardly imagine in our present state. And this is why Christ prayed that prayer in, in, in John 17 as he's going to die for us. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am so that they may see my glory. It wasn't a selfish prayer he was praying. It was a hopeful prayer to see us be changed and renewed and full of joy. He knew that such a sight would be a truly beatific vision. And he loves us and he longs for that day for us. Back around the same time I watched that science fiction film, there was a viral video on the internet of a woman named Susan Boyle. You remember her? Uh, she was on the TV show, the reality TV show, Britain's Got Talent, and she was kind of a silly, frumpy, uh, middle-aged woman from a small town in Scotland that everybody thought was going to be one of those acts that you laughed at. But when she sang, I dream, a, dreamed a dream from Les Mis, when she began the song, it was not only good, it was truly exceptionally beautiful. And everyone was shocked and, and thrilled and humbled and amazed and it has hundreds of millions of views and I, I suggest you look it up if you haven't seen it but when you watch it pay attention to the judges Be that's the advice of a music composer and, and a professor named Michael Linton who, get, who wrote an article about it back in the day he said there comes a time when the judges are transformed the boredom the cynicism the professionalism even their age all seem to be washed away Seeing their faces as they listen to Miss Boyle is to see people almost beatified. This event, the music, the words, the woman, the judge's recognition of their own shame in misjudging her, sensing shame of the audience and hearing their cheers, through all of this, the beauty of Boyle's singing hovers over them like a benediction. And for a moment, only a moment, we glimpse them as they most fully are. Happy, blessed, and they are deeply, magnificently beautiful. True beauty beyond our expectations has an effect on us, a beautifying effect, a beatific effect, truly blessing us to the point of changing us for the good, if even for a moment. But it's enough to hint at what is possible, a whisper of what will be for the children of God when we are not only beatified, but beautified made fully and completely beautiful by the beauty of Christ. When the fullness of joy and love overflow from us freely and fully and purely and abundantly, this will be the consummation of our sonship and the consummation of all of creation. Romans 8 says that the creation waits with eager longing for what? For the revealing of the sons of God. Our, our vision of Christ will reveal who we really are in him. And this revealing of our glory will be of such splendor that the whole creation is aching with anticipation be, to behold not only him, but us. 
This is because our glory as children of God will actually liberate the creation from its curse of slavery and decay. Listen to verse 21 in Romans 8. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We cannot speak too highly of this hope. We are in for more than we can imagine. There is a line in a song that we sang right before I came up here, a song that Pastor Andrew wrote. And in the bridge, he imagines us in the new creation, looking at one another and saying, look at what we've become just by trusting his love. I love that. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There is, some, there is something so powerful about this vision that it works backward into the present. And we're told in verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Not just Everyone who hopes, everyone who thus hopes, meaning everyone who hopes like this, with this hope that we have been talking about, to hope in seeing Christ and being changed by that beatific vision. That hope, hoping in it actively, will change you. This will happen. Everyone who hopes like this will purify himself. If you have this hope, you will purify yourself. To see Christ as he is, is such a powerful experience that even to want it and to anticipate it will have life-altering effects in your heart. And that's what I believe hope is. It's to want something really deeply, really, really want something in your bones and in your heart, but also to expect it, to anticipate it, to know with confidence it is coming. Because you can expect something without wanting it, and you can want something without expecting it, but to deeply want something and to confidently expect it, that is hope. At least that's my working definition. And so our common sense tells us, even when we think of it in those terms, that such, such a thing will obviously have an effect on us. We all know this. Even one side or the other can, can drastically affect your life. So both of them together is a potent cocktail, right? Just wanting something badly enough has all kinds of... Uh, implications. It fuels all kinds of action and choices and so on in your life. And the same with expecting something. Like being certain that something is about to come and, and will definitely lead you to act as though it's coming. So to hope in something particular will lead to particular effects in your life. Because you start to think of things through the lens of your hope. You ask questions like, are these desires of mine in keeping with this great desire? Do these actions fit in with what I know my future is to be? To really understand the shaping power of hope, though, we have to understand something fundamental about humanity. The Bible often describes us as clay, right? We are malleable, formed by the forces outside us. And we conform to whatever we pour ourselves into. And then when we face the heat, it hardens us into that form. When we give ourselves to our idols, we're shaped by them, formed into their image. 
Psalm 115.8 says, Those who make idols become like them, so do all who trust in them. And when the heat of trials or the heat of death comes, it hardens us into the form we've been molded into. The objects of our attention, of our devotion, our commitments, our, our thought patterns, our indulgences are shaping us for what Paul calls either honorable use or dishonorable use. In 2 Timothy 2, 21, he says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. What are you giving yourself over to day by day? moment by moment, into what are you being formed? And for what purpose? And this leads to another fundamental aspect of hope and why it purifies us. Because hope is actually the primary means by which we are purified because impurity is primarily caused by the opposite of hope. What the Apostle Paul calls nearsightedness. In 2 Peter, uh, sorry, the Apostle Peter. In 2 Peter, he tells his readers to supplement their faith with a whole list of virtues. And then he follows that up by saying this really insightful statement. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. We can become so nearsighted that we become blind. In his book, Talking to Strangers, Malcolm Gladwell highlights a new way of thinking about alcohol and intoxication. The old theory, probably the one you're familiar with, is called the disinhibition theory. The idea that drinking reveals a truer version of a person without external social restraint. But the newer theory, among many who study the subject, is the myopia theory. Myopia is another word for extreme nearsightedness. It's the effect of making short-term considerations loom large. And more demanding long-term considerations fade away. It crowds out everything except the most immediate experience. And when one is myopic and extremely nearsighted in this way, they only consider the right here, right now. And Gladwell's point is that this actually strips us of essential parts of our humanity that make us ethical and productive and responsible. And even without alcohol, though, we fall into myopic ways of thinking and living. For example, temptations are often myopic. Myopia is a great tool of the devil. Temptation says, look at just right here, right now. When you're tempted to lie, this is going to fix this present problem. Don't worry about any future problems it may cause. Sexual temptation says, focus on the present feeling. Don't worry about the relational mess in the future. Don't think about the resulting emptiness. And whatever you do, don't think about God. Temptations make us extremely nearsighted and myopic. And the myopia theory of intoxication and alcohol gives us fresh insight into Scripture's call to be sober-minded. Because listen carefully with that interpretive lens. Listen to how Peter describes being sober-minded. He says this, Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter means by being sober-minded is looking beyond the right here and right now and hoping in glorious grace that is yet to come. This is how he purifies us. 
But specific hope purifies us in specific ways. This is what we learn from the Beatitudes. I believe John, in this passage, is saying something very similar to what Jesus said in his Beatitudes. When Jesus gave us the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, one of them is strikingly similar to what John is saying. Here, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And when you read through the Beatitudes, the pattern in them is that they describe a present state of blessedness that is grounded in a specific hope. Right? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's clear that he's saying the expectation of the reality of God's mercy toward us allows us to live blessed lives as mercy givers. The one at the end makes this very clear. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. So we see a future hope, a reward of blessing us in it, that blesses us in the present as we face something difficult and challenging. Now take that interpretive lens back to the pure in heart beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So what hope leads us to be pure in heart? The sight of God. And what I find so helpful about this and all, and all, is that all the Beatitudes are counterintuitive blessings. That what makes them so unique and beautiful and powerful is that Jesus says to poor people, and he says to people who are mourning, he says, in my gospel, you are blessed. And, and the Beatitudes are take, talking about how the hope of the gospel transforms our present struggle into blessed living. So to include purity in this list implies that it is a struggle. It's a difficult path, the path of purity. But in Christ, it is a blessed path. And it is empowered by the hope of seeing God and his purity. We live in an impatient world, in a myopic world that is nearsighted to the point of blindness. And the economic law of supply and demand holds. And the impatience and nearsightedness is, focus is catered to at every point. The world doesn't know what it means to live in hope of a future vision. It only knows the ceaseless appetite to gorge itself on the new and the now. But the world doesn't know us, us because it didn't know him, right? Like we're cut from a different cloth is what John is saying. We don't fit in. We find ourselves driven by hope in a future sight. And the Apostle Paul says, for who hopes for what he sees right now? But our hope, as we hope for what we do not yet see, we wait for it with patience. True hope makes us patient. Even in the midst of an impatient, new, and now world obsessed with more and more sights and sounds and tastes and something, anything to titillate, to satiate, to stimulate. And we walk with a, by faith in a hope that even now starts to purify us in the midst of this world. And the Beatitudes show us that specific hope changes us in specific ways and that the hope of seeing God purifies our hearts, but John tells us something even more specific, doesn't he? He says, whoever thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We are purified as he is pure. So how is he pure? 
And first, let's ask, what is purity? Because the first thing to say about purity is that it's not just abstinence. Purity is not the absence of vices or the avoidance of moral dangers. It is a vivid and definite thing. And I find it helpful to take a step out of the realm of morality to another sphere in which we use the word purity. And, and when we do, the first thing I think of is pure water. And when we speak of pure water, we mean that it's not mixed with anything else. It's not polluted or diluted. It's, and, and a pure soul is the same way. Our wills, our affections are so easily mixed with other things. We're divided and, and, and diluted. We're dissolved and polluted and, and torn in a million different directions and filled with a million different things competing for the wheel of our life. Soren Kierkegaard once said something that I think is insightful. He said, purity of heart is to will one thing. And he was commenting on James 4, 8, which says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So when James says to purify your hearts, you double-minded, purity is shown as the opposite of double-mindedness. It's whole-mindedness wholeheartedness toward God and his glory, not to be divided in our desires but in our pursuits between the world and God. Notice how James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And so he's that one thing that Kierkegaard was talking about. That's the aim of purity. He is the one thing. Now listen to how Jesus talked about himself in light of that idea of purity. Listen to how Jesus talked about himself and we'll see how he is pure. He said, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Another place, my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And another place, do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the father who dwells in me does his works. I could keep going like this. Jesus was exclusively and completely devoted to the Father, single-mindedly, wholeheartedly, taken up with his Father's will to the, to the point that when he faced the unthinkable, the judgment of God for our sins, it, the horror of it overwhelmed him and he fell on his face and he prayed, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will but as you will. That is purity of heart. Purity was a positive and powerful thing. It was so powerful and positive. It was pivotal to our purity because it led him to the cross. The pure one taking our impurity upon himself so that we might be pure in him. And we will be like him as we see him as he is. And even as we cling to that hope, it will begin to make us like him now in purity. We will purify ourselves as children of God, seeking our Father and his will alone. And so hope in him today as beloved children of God. Hope in him with confidence before your Father in anticipation of what he will make you to become when you behold him in his glory. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are so grateful for the privilege to call you our Father. 
May we never take it for granted. May we live in the confidence and hope of being your children now and forever. But also the greater hope of being transformed by the vision of Christ as he is. What a promise. As we live in this hope, guide us into purity of heart, into the purity of Christ. And we pray with him even now. Amen.